0: You're looking to fine-tune whether for your business your job your team or yourself in each episode we will be discussing different ideas and opinions using real world examples to help you see opportunities innovate and succeed hi it's corby fine and welcome to fine-tune So with me today is an old friend of mine, and um, as most people don't know, actually, my boss at one point, Michael Tamblin, who is currently the CEO of Rakuten Kobo. Uh, Michael, welcome to the podcast today.
1: Corby, thanks so much for having me.
0: I, I was doing the math, <clears throat> trying to figure out how old I was, and I used the, uh, the, the decades count of, of two decades ago. When uh, we worked together at an interesting little startup back in the day, when you know startups were stealthy and
1: had multiple pivots before they figured out what they were actually doing for a living. <laughs> Absolutely, and one that didn't quite survive to uh, you know in the in the wild. So, if they say that uh, you know, failure is an important part of growth, we've got it. We got it covered.
0: So, so you entered that startup, having spent some time in the publishing industry, and then, you know, your career kind of took you back to your passions. And I, I remember talking to you back in, in the day of some options you had and, and the path that you took, but you ultimately landed at Kobo, um, which, you know, many of the listeners will know as, you know, at the time, a great ebook um, platform. Um, running content, I think, was the the sort of first thing you did there. Mm-hmm. Is, is that right?
1: I joined the team uh pretty soon after it uh, uh, after it was first founded and the um, it was a very small team it was incubated literally in the basement of indigo's head offices in downtown Toronto and after whacking an app together uh, Mike Serbinus, who was the the founding CEO realized that he needed someone to deal with all of these authors and publishers who uh, um, you know for whom, were absolutely going to be required in order to make the thing work. So, uh, so I jumped from being CEO of another company to come over and do this.
0: It's interesting,
1: and and helping them. Then, once you became CEO, through
0: you know what became a, a very large acquisition of a Canadian company by an international
1: organization. What what was what was that like? Well, I was. Um... I was still chief content officer when we were acquired, but it was, uh, and then I took over as CEO in 2014. But it was an it was an interesting um, series of steps that led us to that acquisition. I mean, we had always had the sense, even when we were first, um, we were first getting started, that this wasn't going to look the way that book retail normally looked. It wasn't going to be. There's going to be the biggest ebook store in Canada and the biggest ebook store in Germany and the biggest big store in France there were going to be a few global players and um, with all of the things that we know about internet scale and platform efficiencies they were going to um, they were going to do that around the world and we wanted to be one of them which was a you know a fairly you know that was a fairly ambitious goal for for people sitting in a basement in Toronto but the Um, the thing that helped us to get there was realizing that the problem that we were trying to solve for Indigo in Canada was a problem that was shared by every other incumbent book retailer in the world. And if we could just get from one country to the other fast enough, we could, uh, we could capitalize on that. So that led to a a series of funding rounds through 2009, 2010, 2011, um, And the business grew incredibly fast. So we did almost $100 in revenue in our first year. um, And a lot of that was coming off of hardware, was coming off of e-readers. And a couple of things became very apparent very quickly as we were starting to raise money, as we were starting to scale. Uh, One was that hardware is incredibly capital-intensive. You have to you have to buy things. You have to build stuff. You have to have inventory and in warehouses. You have to, uh, you know, you're buying Wi-Fi chips and screens and plastics, and especially in 2009, 2010, that wasn't a really popular business model to fundraise on. Uh, you know, people wanted a nice. You know, SaaS company, something that was, you know, if it had some social in it, if it had some, you know, was a mobile in it, that would be great. Um, but the, if you were a VC, the, the perfect company to invest in is somebody with, you know, five engineers and a server that you could put a million users on. So the idea of having to build physical stuff just wasn't attractive at the time. So we were, you know, we were raising money in Silicon Valley. We were, you know, we were in New York, we were all over. And the, the combination of startup in Toronto, uh, competing against Amazon and, uh, and later Apple and Google as well, combined with having a mixed hardware software content play was, you know, was not the sexiest thing you could put in front of somebody at the time. Um, and and yet, we could see that like the business was growing, the scale was there, the customers were there. Uh, we just needed runway. So at the at the end of the third round that we did, which is I think about a fifty million dollar raise, uh, almost all of which immediately got plowed back into working capital, so that we could keep building devices. Um, we realized that this was just going to need a much deeper well of resources then we would be able to find at the time in the capital markets and it would be a totally different story now you know, if you were uh showing that kind of growth in 2018 2019 there are funds that could write you a 100 million dollar check um but at the time there really wasn't there certainly wasn't in Canada
0: so then what happened at that time
1: so right at the time that we were starting to go okay like how are we how are we going to keep growing this was when Rakuten called, the largest e commerce company in Japan. They had started a process of diversification, of bringing, uh, of acquiring other companies outside of the Japanese market. And, uh, and we had a really interesting profile for them, both because we were at a lot of different markets. We'd become very international very quickly. We were a B2C business, but we also had this, this interesting business to business component of empowering retailers. And that was very much part of Rakuten's you know, founding DNA in Japan. Of they were essentially built as a marketplace, so all of that came together and led to the uh, the acquisition in 2012, and was really the best thing that could have happened to us. Both because they were able to put a lot of capital into the business right at a time we needed it, but they also gave us a ton of operating discipline when we really needed it like as you know as we're starting to ship millions of devices instead of thousands of devices as we're starting to make big bets in terms of which markets we go into you need a different level of operating discipline that you know we were like 22 months old we didn't have it <laughs> so all of a sudden you learn how to plug into a, a publicly traded Japanese company and you get this giant uh, injection of uh, forecast discipline, inventory management discipline, you know, financial, uh, you know, financial operations—all stuff that we needed right at the time we needed it. So it uh, it worked out perfectly. You entered
0: this little bit of a of a debrief with the notion that you kind of got into the business and fairly early realized that you needed to think globally, not just domestically. And I think nowadays, to your point, it's much easier to reconcile the fact that a startup in a Toronto market or in a Canadian landscape. Can actually achieve a global uh, footprint in a much easier manner because of the fact that we 've got credibility, and one of the things we have credibility as a result of are stories like yourselves. so if you think back to that time and you think you know advising other businesses and startups in today 's landscape what are the what are the kind of pivot points that you kind of wake up and you say like now is the time to really start to think about that expansion, think about what are the triggers in a business that say we're not going to do enough and become big enough domestically we need to look outside of our you know comfort zone
1: it's interesting to look back on some of those some of those decisions because a lot of them were almost you know were architecturally driven in a lot of ways you know, you start to think about are we going to internationalize are we going to support multiple languages are we going to support multiple currencies and at the time they're incredibly painful uh uh resource allocation decisions to make because everything gets a little bit slower when you're building multi-language support, when you jump out of English and even just start doing English and French. Um, The same with currencies, the the same with a lot of other things that go into building an internationalized product. But we knew from almost the very beginning that certainly it wouldn't survive in Canada on its own. And when we looked at where the opportunities were, we could see that it would be really easy to just get stuck in the United States. And then you become one of those kind of two-country Canadian you know, startups that spends a lot of time looking at the U.S. and sometimes looking at Canada. But there was all of this untapped market for us all through Western Europe, and Australia, New Zealand, into Asia. And so in some ways, we turned our back on the U.S., Um And we, at the same time, we knew that Amazon, Apple, Google, Barnes & Noble were all located in that market. It was the biggest, richest market for digital content in the world. Everybody was going to fight as hard as they possibly could to own it. And that meant it was going to be like a marketing bloodbath, a customer acquisition bloodbath. Like These people were going to beat themselves bloody to try and win and hold on to that market. So by saying okay that's not priority number one where else can we go we got probably a year or more of running room of going into Western Europe of picking up uh, non-english territories of you know starting to look at how we would operate in like double byte languages in Asia and uh, and that was the thing in the end that saved us so we got to the point where we were no longer dependent on one particular market or even one particular language. And what we've seen is markets do go up and down. Like you'll, you'll have a financial crisis or a retailer will go bankrupt or you'll lose a distribution you know, uh, channel. And if we were US Canada only or US Canada, UK, we'd be incredibly exposed uh, to those fluctuations. Now we can kind of ride it out. Which has uh, which has been great, yeah. So playing that global uh, platform play, most of those competitors
0: are are gone, right? Whether you took them over, like a, yeah, a yeah. Borders, <laughs> I remember vividly, you know, taking a plane down to New York for business trip or personal weekend, and literally every five six blocks there'd be a bookstore, and now you can't find one. You know, you guys absolutely in some regard. Created markets, but on on the other hand, were part of the natural consumer behavior shift that ultimately, in some regards, I'm not going to say killed a market, but changed a market in terms of the way in which the physical book was distributed.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been interesting because the the book market is probably the you know the only media category that's gone through a digital transformation without completely tipping over and getting you know, fundamentally reinvented. So you look, you know, you look at music. Where the economics of the whole business got completely inverted, first by piracy, then by streaming. Um, you look at video, kind of same thing happened, like a complete disruption and reconfiguration of players. And and books weren't quite that bad, which was which is interesting considering the players that are involved. I mean, you you have Amazon, huge disruptor, you have all of these incumbent. Uh, bricks-and-mortar retailers, and you would think, okay, this thing's going down. But instead, what happened was, for a bunch of different reasons, books as a format proved to be really resilient. And so where we have seen you know, the, the music label business looks completely different now than it did 20 years ago, all of the same publishers are still there. They're still in business. They're still making money essentially the way they have. They've been able to assimilate digital into the mix without really rocking their internal P and even like small format independence up until we got into the current crisis have been able to to come through okay if they had a good market niche in a particular neighborhood. But one of the reasons for that is that we as we were starting Kobo, looked at this as you know one of the advantages that we could have was what if we partnered with these retailers? and use them as the way to promote the service. So by buying Kobo you are, you know, if you're an Indigo fan, you're supporting Indigo. If you are somebody who loves, you know, the French bookselling chain Fnac, you know, the this is the way that you can continue to support them while buying books in digital if that's what you want to do. And that both proved to be an incredible way to get uh retail distribution to get access to the most valuable customers that we needed like where's the best place to go and find potential ebook customers you find them in a bookstore like it's you know it's not it's not that it's not rocket science but what was great about that particular strategic decision was it was the one place that our competitors couldn't go so I like to say we only have three competitors, the largest e-commerce company in the world, the most profitable hardware manufacturer in the world, and the world's most powerful search engine. Like, you know, it's no big deal. Three small companies. So how do you compete against that? You have to go somewhere that they, by the nature of their DNA, can't reach you. And the place that we found was through these partnerships with existing bookstores.
0: So I'm not really sure that everybody actually understands... All of the economics of how this business works. And when you referenced the music business, <clears throat> the, you know, t- the other publishing angles like magazines, I, I haven't held a CD and I haven't you know, bought a physical magazine in uh, I don't know how long. And yet the book business is really interesting to me because it's maintained optionality. Like Mm there, nobody, nobody presses CDs. Now I do have a vinyl collection and that's a whole other nerd out conversation we can talk about later, but that's like repurchasing stuff that I gave away years ago for nothing. And that was like silly of me. This is, I still have a choice. I can buy a book and yet I'm using a digital distribution channel to get it because there's no more physical places to go buy them as much or... I'm choosing to read it and consume it on a different device, which happens to be a digital content play on a reader, whether it's my phone Mm -hmm. or my tablet or my computer or something uh, specifically designed for that purpose. So it is an interesting play. Maybe talk a little bit about, in general sense, the overall business, because there's one, there's the purchase of the actual content, two is there's the device, whether it's dedicated or not. What are the other aspects of this business that maybe the
1: average consumer doesn't really know about? So what I, what I love about this business and why I've had so much fun doing it is that it's like, it's a bit of an encapsulation of all of the most interesting things in, in e-commerce in the last 10 years. So it's, yeah. Um, it's existing on mobile devices and on tablets, but it's also happening on dedicated hardware, which we then have to build and design and manufacture and ship around. Uh, it's happening in an e-commerce context. So people are coming to websites on browsers or on devices to discover books and buy them. But we're also engaging with customers in physical retail. Like that's often where they're discovering us for the first time. So there's a, uh, there's a big, B2B component that has us integrating with a website like Indigo's or WH Smiths in the UK or any of the other retailers that we work with. So for us, we've got a big focus on the consumer and on reading behavior and how do you make a reading experience great. We have this um, design and manufacturing side of how do you make really compelling hardware that. Uh, are going to keep people reading and make them read more often and a ton of back office scale and integration so that you can plug into and power all of these different retailers all over the world. And then, so it's, you know, it's those compounding factors of doing all of that, doing it in 150 countries, doing it in 12 languages that make it really interesting on the, on kind of the economic side, we have on one hand, selling eBooks, eBooks are cheaper than physical books. So it's a big volume business. We have to have a lot of customers. We have to recognize that when we get someone, we don't get all of their book purchasing. We usually get some of it. So people who are unlike the CD example you gave, most people who buy eBooks are still also buying print books at the same time. Like They may be buying print books for their kids, or they may be buying art books for their coffee table at the same time that they're buying mysteries and thrillers for us that they're going to be reading on their phone or on a device that we've sold them. There's all of that happening uh, at the same time that we're in the bare knuckle business of building consumer hardware and selling it through retail, which is its own exciting set of challenges. Yeah, you're you're really in an interesting spot
0: within this whole world of media and content fragmentation, uh, both the the specific vertical and content set, and then the, the role you play as, as someone on both sides of the distribution and hardware, as well as the distribution and the actual content itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's an interesting place. But I still think the, and I'll bring it down to the average consumer, I think the average consumer still thinks of Kobo as a reading platform. And yet, yeah. with all kinds of new content formats, uh podcasts, youtube, these very niche specific b2b sort of business collateral. Do you see Kobo possibly changing or has it already begun to change to be more than a source of what I would call, you know, entertainment and sort of pleasure reading, learning, education to become more of a platform where people, businesses, brands can look at it as something that they can build on. They can build scale, they can build relevance, they can build revenue and livelihood. And are there any examples of adopters that are taking advantage of it in that way?
1: It's an interesting question because one of the, I think one of the things that people often underestimate with, uh, especially with e-commerce platforms is. You know, how much the opportunity and the economics are bounded by customer acquisition and the kind of customer that you get. So for, for us, we're in a series of, uh, of locations and territories where we're acquiring a person who loves books and has made reading a central part of their life. And so when you start to look at market adjacencies, it really does become a question of what does that person want to do? Because if you want to do something else, you then have to go and acquire a different person at a different price with a different set of economics attached to them. So that's the dimensions that we started to look at were, okay, we have this customer who loves reading and they read a lot. So we have, you know, we have customers who are buying three books a week and reading them and then moving on to another three books a week. So we effectively have all of that person's reading time covered. The So the next question for us becomes, are there other available pieces of time that we don't have access to yet? And you know, when we do our market research and we look at how those people spend their days, we see, okay, well, we don't have time Uh, we don't have your time when you're in the car or when you're doing housework or when you're going for a run or you're at the gym. That's what led us into audiobooks was, okay, here's a way that we can continue that engagement with that customer. Uh, We can get access to those other blocks of time that we don't have available and kind of keep going and keep that reading experience happening. When we start to extend too far out from that, we then end up in a Different customer segment that usually means we have to go and find a different person. So if we were going to go into music, for example, or video, for example, the like the Venn diagrams of those customer bases don't line up perfectly at all. So then you have to go and figure out, well, how do I market to a music consumer and try to bring them in when it's already another incredibly competitive market? But from the perspective of how do these things get used as platforms, one of the things that was the biggest eye opener for us. And it started fairly early on was realizing how much the book world and the publishing world changes when you take physical product out of the mix. So, you know, within the first couple of months of starting up, we had the first email come to us from an author who sent us essentially a word document and said, here's my book, can you sell it? And, uh, you know, We got, I think an intern to like make a cover in Microsoft paint or something like that and stick it on and start to sell it. Um, and then, you know, the next week it was two and the next week it was 10 and the next week it was a hundred to the point where we actually had to start building tools and systems around it. So now we have a service called Kobo writing life, which is our self publishing independent publishing platform. And what was originally built because we didn't know how to handle people that were coming in with one book at a time has become a major disruptor to the industry as a whole. Because now in Canada, one in four books that we sell isn't coming from a publisher anymore. It's coming direct from a person who's decided to write a book, produce it, edit it, design it themselves, and then bring it through this distribution platform to meet the 37, 38 million customers that we have. And that's, that's new. There used to be all of these gatekeepers in between. You would have to get an agent. The agent would have to find a publisher. The publisher would have to sell the book into a retailer. And that meant that the number of books coming out every year was incredibly small. And now it's a river. And what I think no one was prepared for was how quickly that segment would professionalize. So as soon as you get enough sales that you're starting to make some real money, you then go and you hire an editor and you hire a professional designer. And we can put those titles next to a book that's coming from a major publishing company and you can't tell the difference. And at that point, it really is a disruptor because then it's a fight for eyeballs and attention between a very big company and a book coming from you know, an individual person that's indistinguishable so you built your
0: own content engine by empowering yep. your customers yeah, to yeah. become the providers <laughs> what a <clears throat> what a genius idea and so i guess from a brass tax perspective i run this podcast to help people and businesses you know trying to fine tune themselves and so you're telling me that there's an opportunity for me to actually figure out how to now self-publish a, a, yeah. non-fi- a nonfiction book around the same topic. And I don't need the professional experience, the editorial experience. There's a channel developed within your platform that can help me essentially become something that I had no notion that I could do before.
1: And uh, I think most importantly, that they're, like you still have to be good at writing. You still have to edit it yourself. You still have to like find a way to package it to make it look professional, although we have like services we can direct you to to help you with that. But the most important thing is that you can find an audience that previously was really hard to access and is now incredibly easy to access because there's been an evolution at the same time in terms of how books are discovered. So you know, we've gone much more into a world of um, kind of a combination of human human expertise on one side and algorithmic uh, recommendations on another. That book gets surfaced to a lot of people who we've a pretty good sense are going to find it interesting. And so that question of well how are people going to find it and how are people going to know who I am is very different than it was 10 or 20 years ago. So yeah, you should you should absolutely write a book and you should get it on there. And and what's crazy is 10 years ago you probably would have had to write a romance novel or a science fiction novel to, you know, to have that get any kind of traction. But that world's opened up to the point that now people are putting, you know, their business books and their travel guides and everything else in there too. And, and they're selling without Fabio as a model on the cover or with
0: Fabio or (laughs) (laughs) how to build a podcast by Fabio. That's right. All right. I think we found our niche. So, okay. A couple of quick, quick round over questions for you already. Phone, tablet, laptop, physical book, e-reader
1: go. Um, at home e reader on a plane e reader when I'm like stuck in a lineup, uh, phone running audiobook on phone caught me
0: on the audiobook. Like it. Aha. Um, <clears throat> question two fiction or nonfiction?
1: When I am under stress, it's uh. Um, it's the trashiest fiction I can find. Like I just, I go right to the bottom and I love it when, when I've got a little more mental space, I either go deeper into literary fiction or I go into nonfiction and then it's biography, history, politics, and science.
0: I've become a huge fan of astrophysics lately and Neil deGrasse Tyson. And, uh, I don't understand 72% of it, but man, is it fun to try and figure it out. (laughs) Excellent. And the third question, what's the best book that no one knows about?
1: Oh, wow. Okay, the best book that no one knows about. Um without a doubt the most interesting work of political history that I've ever seen. And what it um so
0: it's not on the it's not on the end of the spectrum of the trashiest. Uh, you just need to kind of like undo yourself for a while.
1: No, no. Uh, this was
0: proving to my audience that I didn't set him up with this question. No, okay. Catch so off
1: guard. yeah. So the the book is called American Nations by Colin Woodard. It's a history of the eleven rival regional cultures of the United States, which sounds super dry, but it gets to that question of why is the United States such a kind of riven, heterogeneous, um, you know, irreconcilable mix of politics and beliefs uh, when there's this sense of, well, you know, it's the United States, it's one big melting pot. And he goes back through the history to show how successive waves of immigration And different groups of people coming from different parts of the world and then settling in different parts of the United States created very different senses of what civil society was, what the role of government was, what level of interaction and engagement in the public sphere is good or bad. And then you fast forward that through to today and you get, you know, why do we have red states and blue states? Why do we have swing states that seem to go back and forth? Why, when dealing with a health pandemic, does the word bipartisan even matter? Exactly. And so, all of that, when you look at it from the outside and try to look at the US as one monolithic culture, makes absolutely no sense. But when you look at it as, oh, we had a group of people who came in as Quakers into New England who prized above all things the idea of a cohesive, Local government that people were participatory in, and a sense of engaged civil society, and then you have stretches through Appalachia that were essentially indentured servants who were able to finally leave the farms and wanted to get as far away from uh, people in power as possible, and you know wanted to be as independent from those people as possible. You get some, you get a very different political mix across the country. Fascinating, super well written. I like, you know, a a great engaging read, but you just come away with a different lens on how to look at a whole country. It's cool. Michael's
0: pick for the day.
1: There you go. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm going to summarize.
0: I've got a a number of really key points that I think you, you made, you know, one, no matter where you start your business or where you're operating, it's always good to keep the eye on the global pulse, not just domestic. And secondly, watch For those signals in your business that might signal you need help to scale. And don't always think about the traditional angles, the traditional routes and the traditional paths as to what that means. It's not always going to come from Silicon Valley. It's not always going to come from your friends and family. Sometimes it's on the other side of the world in a business you never even thought to look at, which is a, a really great story of the art of the possible. And I think if your problem is ultimately shared by all of your competitors, whether it's locally, uh, internationally, on a global basis, and you can help solve for that problem first. There are untapped opportunities to help your competitors to change the market and to ultimately be the leader and the most successful in that so don't be afraid to go and try and solve a universal problem as opposed to something that you yourself are facing and and I think we 've seen the outcome of that with your you know the the story of Cobol ultimately. Becoming the infrastructure partner for so much of the actual industry itself mm-hmm. uh, and helping other businesses find ways to create relevance for themselves, so you know re- really great um, tips and and I think no matter whether you're a, a small or a large business there's there's something to think about within those within those uh, experiences
1: If I would add one more thing, it's don't be afraid of lack of expertise in an in an area. you know we went into the hardware side of our business, no one in the company had ever built a device before we thought it would be an important part of of being able to find customers and project ourselves out into the market we knew the need was there and we figured it out as we went along and the you know a lot of that was you know down to the culture that was started by you know Mike Serbinas, who was our founding CEO and also having a lot of people on the executive team who had all been CEOs somewhere else there was this sense of, yeah, usually you don't know everything when you start and you figure it out as you go. And uh, that uh, that ended up being something that we still tap into today when we're trying to figure out whether we can jump into something new. That's
0: that's great. And, and thank you for adding that. So again, uh, with me today has been Michael Tamblin, CEO of and Kobo. Michael, uh, been a pleasure. It was great to catch up. Your beard is longer than mine. So... Um, <laughs> I look forward to uh, to seeing you in in person soon, and we
1: can have a shave party together. No way, this thing's staying. I've uh, yeah. Now that I've uh, I've gone full mountain man in uh, in pandemic isolation, I'm uh, I'm never going back. Awesome. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to Fine Tune. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with me on Twitter at C Fine, through LinkedIn at Corby Fine, or visit my website, corbyfine.com. Fine Tune is produced by me, Corby Fine. Thanks for listening.